Hey, what's up? This is uh, another episode of Recovered AF Podcast. This is 50% of this podcast. Uh, this is Kyle, and uh, I'm going to kick it over to Aaron, the other 50% of the hosting podcast, to do our little non-disclaimer. That's right. Uh, yeah, so we are not affiliated with any uh, 12-step groups. We are just a couple of individuals uh, sharing our experience, usually as it relates to 12-step uh, stuff and, and recovery. But uh, we are by no means spokespeople for those 12 step groups. And like we say, pretty much episode every episode, if those people were to elect spokespeople, it would not be Kyle and I. So (laughs) we're not the we're not the face of the deal. Yeah. So and we have another guest with us today. So that's pretty cool. We've been fortunate enough to line up some guests. Yeah, absolutely. We're down here interviewing Amy, which will be released. And then she was welcoming enough to invite a friend, Brett. And. Aaron and I do not know Brett, so this is going to be a new experience, and I'm excited for it. So, yeah. how you doing, Brett? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Good, good. Um, <clears throat> usually, where we kick this thing off, just to kind of give us a starting point, is your original introduction into a 12-step fellowship. Whether it was your first time, and then you kind of were out and back in, or out and back in, or it was in and stuck. Uh, what was your first experience like? So. I vividly remember my first meeting. It was in rehab in um, Michigan. Uh, it was a Friday night, and um, my it was, a, it was a very good first step meeting. And I remember my brother and my sister-in-law and my wife came to the meeting, and they went to the Al-Anon meeting upstairs. Um, and um, I was at the AA meeting downstairs, and it was my first week of rehab, and I was just thinking, man... How did it get to this? <laughs> and uh, but, the, but the old timers took me to the side, and you know, there were two other people there for their very first meeting, and they told us about how AA works, and um, you know, told us just kind of you know not talk too much at the first, you know, uh, just listen, mm-hmm. and, you know, try and be honest, and you know, and see if you can identify with the stories and stuff like that. And I thought it was okay. I guess I'll do it. But you know, when I was in rehab, I had no intention of of sticking around. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to get through my rehab and be back into my life. Um, but after the meeting, my my wife, my brother, and my sister-in-law came down from the Al-Anon group. And the Al-Anon group, uh, we all held hands and said the Lord's Prayer. And uh, my brother was holding my hand, and I'm Jewish and didn't know the Lord's Prayer and just kind of <laughs> was looking around very nervously. And my brother's holding my hand, which was very awkward, mm-hmm. saying this Christian <laughs> prayer, which was even more awkward. Um, and he whispers to me right after that, and he says, if this is your solution, you're screwed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I agreed, absolutely yeah. agreed. Yeah. And uh, so, but then my, my second meeting was, I, I'm a dentist, and um, there's, there was a healthcare-specific meeting uh, later that weekend on Sunday that I was planning to go to, and I figured that was where they were going to really teach uh, teach me how to be sober, you know, yeah. with logic and science, and, you know, this <laughs> yeah. is okay for the normal people, but uh, but I'm going to go over here and, uh, you know, learn with the, the learned folk, and they, uh, you know, I walked into this room, and they were reading from that blue book about mm-hmm. flimsy reeds and the powerful hand of God, and... <laughs> I rolled my eyes again, and, uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, that was my introduction to the twelve step groups. Wow! Yeah, <clears throat> I, you mentioned that you were a dentist. It, this is the thing that this is the thing that happens in my mind, and I'm, I'm glad you talked about that because um, I barely graduated high school. Like I was, I was getting in trouble, you know. And I, I barely graduated high school. Didn't have a lot of 
um, push to go to college. I think my parents, we were talking about this. My parents just wanted me to stop getting drinking underage tickets. Like they weren't, <laughs> college wasn't in the cards for me. And so like, um, just, you know, that level of achievement just didn't ever seem like a reality to me. So people that do do that. So people that are disciplined enough to go to school and then, um, become dentist in my mind, it just never makes sense that they could possibly be alcoholics. Right. And I know, like, I know from experience that that has one has nothing to do with the other one, but it's always good to sit down with somebody like, you know, like yourself so that we can understand like this, this thing, um, touches all lives, you know, regardless of religion or, or, or background or education or career, like this thing affects us all, you know, we don't get to, you know, if we could think our way out of it or educate ourselves out of it or buy our way out of it, like a lot of people wouldn't be here. Right. So. Right. It's definitely an equal opportunity disease. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, but I knew, uh, long before I sought help that I had a problem mm-hmm. and part of my denial was, uh, that I was still, you know, getting good grades. Uh, and I got into dental school and I made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to, and cocaine was my, my drug of choice and alcohol was a close second, but I made a, a conscious decision that I wasn't going to do cocaine anymore um, because here I am, I'm getting ready for my career and I uh, didn't, you know, dentists don't do cocaine. Little did I know they did, <laughs> but, uh, um, but it found me, the drug found me in my third year of school again mm-hmm. and, and it was uh, just like it was uh, three years prior and, you know, and, Whenever I picked up that drug, I disappeared for days on end, mm-hmm. um, ending up in hotel rooms with a bottle of something, doing shit I shouldn't be doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so your intro, you're going, what the hell? This isn't going to be a solution for me, or maybe it is. I don't got anything left. Uh, what tipped you into actually doing this, the steps yourself and um, kind of what was that process like leading into it, getting a sponsor and all of that? Um. Well, after rehab, um, I did a, a six-week outpatient rehab, and the high achiever that I am, they got they let me go in five weeks. <laughs> yeah. And if they, it, it, but I had to be part of this this aftercare group of other healthcare workers, and um, it was twice a week group therapy, kind of facilitated. Um, and part of that group, to be part of that group, I had to uh, go to three meetings a week and have a sponsor. And every, you know, time we come in, we had to sign in, you know, did you do your three meetings a week? Did you, do you still have a sponsor? And, you know, and, and, you know, and I would check it, the check boxes for a while. And then I started saying two meetings a week. Then I started saying one, one meeting a week. And, um, over, over time too, you know, I was trying not to stand out in the group cause I didn't want to be called out on anything. And so I'd make up stories to, you know, let everyone know how great my life is going and how I'm <laughs> overcoming these challenges without drugs and alcohol. And it was really, really awesome. Um, and eventually, uh, I was at zero meetings a week and I was putting it boldly on the sign in sheet. Oh. And there was this guy, part of the group who had been part of this group for like 10 years cause he couldn't graduate from the group. And he was, you know, I thought, you know, he was like the elder statesman, but I'm like, man, this guy can't, <laughs> can't even graduate from this. Right. Right? You, know? <laughs> yeah. you anyway, can't graduate treatment, man. He, you got right. a problem. He calls me out. He says, you know, Brett, you're, uh, I've been noticing the last couple of weeks, you've had zero meetings and, uh, you know, are you still going to meetings? And I'm like, no, not really. Um, he's like, well, um, you know, what do you do to stay sober? I'm like, well, I'm training for a triathlon and, you know, I'm not getting any urges. So I'm just, you know, I'm going great and everything's good. 
And he says, well, we have no way to know if you're sober or not, you know, because everyone else in this group is uh, like healthcare workers in, in early recovery. Most of us have to be in some kind of monitoring program to make sure we're not a danger to the, the public. So the states kind of like regulate our, our um, rehab and our, our, our recovery. Um, I wasn't part of any kind of after like monitoring program. So I was just kind of floating along mm. and, you know, and he was right because there was no way to know if I was using it or not. And of course I was using it at the time yeah. and, uh, you know, but I was a really good liar and I hadn't gotten caught. So I made up a story. I said, Oh yeah, sure. I'll go back to meetings. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I started going back to meetings. Um, but I was, you know, just chipping, you know, and, um, you know, I'd use for, you know, a little bit and then I'd be okay for a couple of weeks and then I'd use for a little bit and be okay for a couple of weeks. And eventually, uh, um, I, I hit a bottom where, um, I, I was living in Michigan. I, I grew up in Chicago and, and that's where all my friends and family were. And that's where my drug dealer was. And that's the only place I would buy cocaine from. And, um, I, uh, my best friend's mother passed away and I drove from Michigan to Chicago, uh, to attend the funeral. And so I, I got sober in 1998 the cell phone service wasn't very robust yet. And, uh, and so it was a big blank spot from like somewhere in Michigan to the Indiana state border. And I started thinking, you know, maybe I should call my dealer. I haven't talked to him in a while. You know, he's a, he's a good guy. I see how he's doing, I see how he's doing <laughs> yeah. you know? And, and I, you know, and so I'm obsessing for about two hours where I had no, no cell phone coverage. Um, and uh, as soon as I crossed over the Indiana border, um, the cell phone lit up and I started pressing his number. And in my mind, I kept saying, don't press send, don't press send. You know, then I press send and start ringing. Okay, don't answer the phone, don't answer the phone. And of course he answers the phone. And next thing I know, I'm saying, hey, how you doing? It's Brett, you know, how you been? Mind if I stop by? We haven't seen each other in a long time, <laughs> um, you know, and, and don't drive to his house. Don't, don't go there. Don't go there. And, and, you know, my car was like on autopilot and, you know, next thing I knew I was at his house and I bought a large quantity of drugs and I started using immediately. I made it to the wake of my, my friend's mom's funeral, but I never made it to the funeral. And that was about 14 months after rehab. Um, so I, I kind of, you know, crawled back out of town and my wife wasn't too happy with me when I got back because I disappeared again and everybody knew I'd screwed over all my friends. My family was not happy. My friends thought I was staying with my family. My family thought I was staying with my friends and I didn't show up to the funeral and they all like, where's Brad? Well, I thought it was with you. No, I thought it was with you. And, um, you know, so I kind of, uh, you know, hit bottom again and, uh, something, uh, rang in my head and well, you know, I got back to, to Michigan and my wife's like, well, you know, you go sleep it off. I knew, I know what you're doing. And, uh, I made an appointment to see your counselor at rehab for the three of us on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> and back then uh, they, they would take, uh, healthcare professionals, uh, who had relapsed, you know, you don't get to go to outpatient rehab anymore. You get to go to six month treatment center in, in, in Atlanta and I just, I started saying to her, I'm like, you know, you just ruined our lives. I'm going to be gone. I'm not going to be able to earn anything for six months. And, you know, look what you've done, you know, just yeah. all the defense mechanisms yeah. that we could to, to, you know, keep us from getting in trouble mm -hmm. that we're very, very good at. Um, and, you know, and, and so I was pretty pissed, but I called 
the guy that uh, I called my sponsor, you know, he, I never really did much work with him, but he knew, um, you know, what I was doing and he kept his, uh, the, the line available for when, you know, ever I called him, mm-hmm. he was always answering the phone and he was pretty good about it. Um, and anyway, I went to a meeting that next day and looking for him and he wasn't there. Um, and I, I found one of his sponsees who also a doctor that, uh, um, I, I took him to side, to, to the side and I said, Hey Dan, I need some help. And it was right after the meeting and there was a group consciousness that night. And he, he was like, well, I'm going to stay for the group conscience. Is that okay? I'm like, it was like a pregnant pause. And then he <laughs> looks at me, he's like, okay, let's go talk. And, uh, so I ended up telling Dan everything, what was going on in the last 14 months. And, uh, and he's like, well, you know, you got to tell the rehab everything. You got to be honest, you know, you're going to die if you don't do this. This, this disease is going to kill you. The amount of cocaine that you're using is you're going to, no human should be able to handle that amount of substance mm-hmm. and the amount of time you're putting it in your body. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So, um, so I, I credit that, uh, that conversation with my friend Dan as the a key credit to, to saving my life. Um, and I felt okay with it. Um, and I went to a bunch of meetings um, that week. In fact, my wife's, you know, left for the weekend. She's like, I'm leaving. You figure it out. <laughs> and I was like, man, I'm about, I'm about to lose everything. I'm about to lose my, my marriage. I'm about to lose my, my dental license. Uh, I've already lost my friend, the support of my friends and my family. Um, and, uh, so I, you know, I, I was screwed and I knew it. Um, I went to a, a meeting, uh, it was a Friday night, I'm sorry, a Saturday night meeting in Michigan that was an open talk. It was a pretty popular meeting, uh, where, where I was trying to get sober and it was like 150, 200 people there. And I figured I'd start going to that and, but I'd, I'd show up late. So no one would talk to me and, you know, then I'd listen to the speaker, then I'd leave early. So no one would talk to me <laughs> and, and that would be all right. And I remember backing into a, a parking spot and watching the door of this, uh, uh, it, it, where this meeting was and, you know, and waiting for everyone to go in. So I didn't have to talk to anybody. I mean, there were like four or five people that were just hanging outside, you know, and it was an eight o'clock meeting and 10 after eight, they were still hanging outside. And I was like, oh shit. Uh, I talked myself out of the meeting and I drove home. Um, and I, I started reading through the big book and, um, I was too crispy. I couldn't sit still. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't mm-hmm. focus on anything. And so I turned on the TV and I started flipping through the channels. And back then there were only like 24 cable channels at the time. <laughs> and so you can flip through and you know, keep going uh, through them until you find something you like. And, I, uh, I started doing that, and a uh, a channel, the uh, channel American Movie Classics, is where I stopped for some reason. And a new movie was starting, um, and on that channel they have this narrator who comes in and introduces the movie, and he uh, introduced uh, this movie called The Days of Wine and Roses, a story about alcoholism and recovery, uh, relationships and death. And I was like, huh, this looks kind of interesting. And so <laughs> Maybe I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> so it was starring uh, Jack Klugman, Jack Lemon, and Lee Remick. And it was, uh, it was a really, really popular movie in the late 60s. Um, um, I think it might have even won an Academy Award. Um, but for the first time, I, I watched this movie. And for the first time, I, I, I related to the Jack Lemon's character as an alcoholic, even though I thought, 
that I wasn't an alcoholic, I was a drug addict, but I recognized um, that there were so many things that I was doing that he was portraying right there in black and white. Um, and then he got 12 step by Jack Klugman's character um, while he was in jail. And, um, and I was like, whoa, wait a minute, they're saying stuff that they say in, in AA. <laughs> and this, this stuff really worked, and it worked back in the 60s. Huh, this is kind of cool. Um, so I remember... The meetings where I got sober always started out with uh, how it works, and uh, the, f the the first line, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And, um, you know, and, and I hadn't thoroughly followed that path. You know, my rehab was saying, you know, three to six percent of us are going to get sober for a year. And um, I'm like, why am I paying all this money for rehab if that's what my success <laughs> yeah. rates? And here AA is saying, rarely have we seen a person fail. And so when it all clicked for me, I just dove in and um, I started going back to meetings. And, and again, I was relating to people's stories instead yeah. of comparing that I wasn't that bad or you're fucked and I'm much better than you. And um, so hope we can swear on this. Is that okay? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's encouraged. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you know, and I, I just dove into, uh, the program and every day, you know, I'd go to meetings. It was the only place in the world that, uh, people said they were glad to see me. It was the only place in the world that told me to keep coming back. No one else in my life really wanted me around and mm -hmm. they didn't definitely want me to come back. Um, <laughs> and I felt more and more hope, every day that I went to a meeting. Um, the, the meeting with the rehab, nothing ever happened other than I did come clean with my counselor and my wife, and um, they didn't send me away for six months. Um, they must have seen this shift of acceptance uh, into, I, I accepted exactly what I was and what I needed to do. Um, and uh, so they didn't send me for more rehab. They did put me on more tight monitoring for drug tests and things like that. But um, but that was it. And so that was 14 months after rehab. Um, October 21st, 1998 was my my last drink and drug. So and then uh, I never left. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny that breaking point because like I was pretty agnostic when I got here and like angry about it like i didn't want i didn't want i get man i would get so heated when i was in the treatment center i mean i was just a ball of emotion anyway but people would talk about god and i would just get angry and i just want to shut them up and um we had this thing I was, I was in the treatment center and they were reading from um one of our books and they were talking about the person who had once had faith and lost it and how he was the most difficult and that was me because I, I hadn't always been that way and and then uh Basically, at one point, I decided that God hadn't 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 done what I wanted Him to do, and I told God to take a hike. And then, like this thought happened though, when we were reading from that, because I was just so close-minded to it, I wasn't going to have any of it. And then the thought came into my head, like, "Haven't you had enough? Like, haven't haven't you had enough, man? Just do whatever these people tell you to." And it was like that breaking point uh, where I was willing to accept the step work and these things that were, like, you know that were being presented to me and it was just one of those things one of those cool things though when i have that breaking point you know up until that point i'm just so sternly against anything that's coming my way and then all of a sudden like that i'm like all right i guess i'll try it and went you know went back to my cabin and prayed for the first time that night and then things really started to change for me but i don't know it's just it's funny that thing that 
you know, sitting back and watching that movie and identifying with it and then softening your edges and like being willing to go back and give this thing a try. It's pretty cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you referenced you were training for a triathlon and stuff. And then I know that you've done an Ironman and stuff. Has uh, that always been a part of your life or is that a result of like a, an attempt to, to get sober with physical exercise or how did that trickle into your life? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I started biking, mountain biking in college, mm-hmm. you know, as a way to get around town, you know. Yeah. Um, and then that turned into, um, you know, ra- uh, racing and road biking and running and things like that. And I did my first triathlon while I was in dental school. Um, and it was a big part of my denial, mm-hmm. you know, because I would quit drinking for about a month to train for the race. Right. And, and I remember crossing finish lines and saying, you know, crack addicts and cocaine addicts can't do triathlons. Yeah. So I must not be a cocaine addict. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but then if you, if you read the big book, uh, page 124, it says many alcoholics are enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. We run to extremes. And so now in my recovery, I, I just following directions, you know, <laughs> running to extremes. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So you've done how many Ironmans? One? I've couple? done one Ironman. One Ironman. Yeah. And what is that again? Like mileage for each? It's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and a 26.2 mile run. Oh my God. A marathon. So. Yeah. And are you're currently training for another one now? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's, when's that one? It's in October in Hawaii. Oh, okay. Uh, I was talking to Kyle on the way down here because I just did my first triathlon. Mm, what was it was it? in May. Yeah, it was like a the Memorial Day weekend, right? It was a sprint type triathlon. Uh-huh. It was a short one. But like prior to that, um, I was like, man, you know, like a couple of years ago, you know, I smoked for 20 something years and a couple of years ago, I'm, you know, injecting, injecting opiates into my thing. And I'm like, man, wouldn't that be a cool story? And if I got off all these drugs and then I became a triathlete and then, man, what if I could even do an Ironman? I bet, you know, and I got to thinking about it. And then Amy, Amy was like, you know, I've got this guy and he'd be great and he'd help you out. And he does, and he does triathlons. And I was like, what? Somebody already, somebody already stole my shtick, man. Yeah, right. Yeah, Aaron's there's lots stories of us. Going on. I know that's there's right. tons of us. Yeah. There's a, a Facebook group called Sober Triathlete, which is uh, there's a bunch of us on there. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. It's, I guess we're 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 prone to do extreme yeah. things, you know. Leave it to Aaron to think he's the only one that's <laughs> right. doing that. Terminal <laughs> uniqueness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we were at, we were at the me- we were at a meeting one time, and the, somebody was reading from one of the stories in the back, and it was about a doctor, and he had um, gotten so. And he had uh, at the end, he had like helped his helped his wife with some dishes. And this is what he could do now. And I was like, yeah, this is how I relate to this fucking guy does one load of dishes and tells the whole world about it. <laughs> yeah. like, yep, that's me. All that right. Party too, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. But no, it does make sense, though, because we struggle to do anything in moderation. And so why wouldn't, you know, some sort of extreme competition not fall right into that thing? Right. Yeah. And, you know, I I love doing uh um you know these kind of events and you know and i do a lot of running and i've done some pretty extreme running events as well and it really does uh i mean it's it's a form of meditation for me it's not where i sit and and really contemplate but at some point in a run or on these events you know my mind just shuts off and i could feel my heart 
beating. I could feel the, the air filling my lungs. And um, I just do it with so much gratitude now. And um, I, I can't uh, can't even describe the, you know, I get, I just, you get so like physically tired and beat down. And I think that's where God enters uh, mm. with his megaphone and starts, mm. you know, talking to us and, and recognize, you know, I get to recognize the, 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 the gifts in my life that I've had as a result of my recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my athletic endeavors are not my recovery program. It's an adjunct to it. My recovery program is, you know, going to meetings, working steps with a sponsor, working with sponsees, service commitments, um, et cetera. But uh, um, because I have that, I've got a diving board where I can just just jump into life in full force. And so I try and, you know, make every day a great day. Absolutely. That was kind of Aaron and I's envision of the podcast was talking to people like you that experience life fully. And we we talk about it all the time. The common narrative sometimes is like, it's so hard and just get through to the, you know, just don't drink today and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, what about the people that are just out there living life fully and participating and doing everything they can? And and like for me, my recovery is the, the springboard that allows me to do that. So it's awesome to hear someone else's. I mean, that's what this whole thing is. Our envisionment was, was like, that's what this is for, is to hear people's experience and give them an opportunity to share that narrative instead of just the, it's a struggle narrative. So. Yeah, you know, in, in the third step prayer, it talks about relieving us of the bondage of, bondage <laughs> of self. I mean, we were totally a slave to our... Uh, to our disease, mm-hmm. you know, and now we're free and we can define our life and take it to any direction we want to yeah. now that we're not in, enslaved by our disease. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there are plenty of people that the best thing they're ever going to do in life is get sober and that's great, yeah. you know, and, um, but, and, and, you know, I don't think everyone is going to get sober and do triathlons or right. be a dentist and things like that. And I think through the work, you you figure out um, that you're that you're unique, and everybody has these God-given gifts, and um, and and they're unique to that individual. And um, I think what God wants us to do is share those gifts with the world. Absolutely. And so I, I just take that to heart. Mm. Yeah, the second half of that talks about as a result of God removing those things, and we get to bear witness. You right. know, like <laughs> we get to go out and live that life and show people what it's all about. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, like I'm all. I'm all. I'm all conflicted here because i think all my questions are revolve around triathlon (laughs) fire away (laughs) (laughs) well so i do have one question though um it seems like there's a lot of coaching that goes on in triathlon and what i'm wondering is so i went out and i was telling amy that like when i decided i was going to do this i bought some equipment i listened to some podcasts and i just trained like crazy and i'm also on a ketogenic diet which means i don't eat a lot of carbohydrates which means sometimes you know I, i wonder if that affects my ability to body's ability to manufacture energy and I don't know. I, then I hit a wall and then I got sick and then I had a trouble getting motivated again. But it seems like there's a lot of coaching and I'm, I'm wondering if that's because it's just so hard to stay self-motivated. Do you find that? Do you have that experience or are you pretty self-motivated or does it ebb and flow? I'm like, cause I mean, an Ironman is a long ways to go. It's a full marathon. It's a 112 mile ride and a 2.4 mile swim. That's a lot in one, you know, that's a lot in one day. It's a full day's activity. So I'm just wondering, you know, the preparation for that's just something I can't even understand and just trying to prepare for a small one. Like, is, is, it, is that why the coaching so prevalent is just for my accountability kind of a thing or, um, I, I've learned, uh, in my recovery that I'm my own worst enemy and I'm, and I'm my own best friend. (laughs) And so, 
I, I have accountability in all areas of my life. I have it in my recovery. I have a sponsor. I have it in my uh, athletic endeavors. I have a coach. Um, I have it in business. I have uh, a business coach. Um, and because I don't trust myself on a regular basis, even though I've, I've accomplished some amazing things, um, I've also hit some major lows. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and I think that the doing the uh, an Ironman, it takes a lot of preparation. And just like getting sober takes a lot of, of work to stay sober. And it's a good metaphor um, because if I don't put in the preparation athletically and the time uh, and training um, come race day, I'm not going to make it. Mm. It's just like if I don't go to meetings, I don't work with my sponsor, I don't do what I need to do for my recovery, I'm not going to make it. Yeah. Um, so it is a... Um, you know, a, a good metaphor for, uh, for recovery and it's a hard work. Mm-hmm. And, um, but with, with a plan and, and then discipline to the plan, um, sometimes that, that discipline comes internally. Sometimes it comes externally. Um, and, and I'll be honest with you, uh, it's fear driven too. You know, I don't want to look bad. Yeah. You yeah. know, I don't want to not finish because <laughs> I didn't train enough. You yeah. know? If I'm not going to finish, I want it to be some spectacular bike crash <laughs> where I've got a head yeah. injury and then I come out on the top, you know, and right. like, look what happened to me. I'll be back. Riding out with the thumbs up on the stretcher. <laughs> like I'll be back. <laughs> the grandiosity. Yeah. Of, of, yeah, exactly. Of the disease still lives within me. It's awesome. Um, and but honestly, the what drives me most, it almost, I almost crave the, the 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 endorphins and um, you know the the feel good neurochemicals that that are secreted in my brain, um, replacing that of the dopamine hit I got from from doing cocaine or drinking. Yeah. And but I get to do it in a positive way, and I get to do it in a in a healthy way, and um, and. I, I get to share it, so I might be able to inspire others to not only not maybe do an Ironman, but to, to push yourself and and get out of your comfort zone. And um, you know, life is uh, is is anything you make of it. Mm. So you know, you, if you stay, if you get out of your comfort zone a little bit, and you know that leap of faith, just like it was when I decided to do the steps, you know, that leap of faith has never ever turned on me. Right. You know, I've always you know learned. Um, something about myself and succeeded uh, eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not saying that it, it was always success, but it's always it's up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, and but if I put a line through, it's a nice upward slope growth. Yeah, and uh, and I'm growing. You know? Yeah, that's inspiring because a lot of the the to embrace the the fact that of the extreme. You know, like some people, it's like, oh well, I just want to drift to the middle and. I've always lived out here, so I'm just going to find the middle. But instead, you've kind of channeled that into like a that propels you forward in a positive way instead of trying to avoid that about yourself. Because like I tend to, um, I I'm an, I'm an extreme person too. I'm black and white very much, and and I've tried sometimes to avoid that and not channel it towards a different direction. And sometimes I feel conflicted by. That. So to just go, you know what, I'm going to do it, but I'm just going to do it in a positive direction. Like that's inspiring. So yeah. I mean, we could do anything we want to in life. Mm-hmm. We can't do everything, yeah. but we can do anything. Mm-hmm. And if we put our focus towards something, you know, and, and you know, be okay to fail, um, you know, but it's, it's good to set goals. Um, 
and with a solid foundation mm-hmm. of, of recovery, I think anything goes, Absolutely. you know, and anything's achievable. And in the Ironman world, there's a, a saying that, that says anything is possible. And, you know, there's, there's people out there running with, with one leg. Mm. Um, there's people out there pulling their, their brother who had cerebral palsy on a, on a bike trailer mm-hmm. and then pushing him on the run. And I look at them and I'm just like, man, you know, there's there's so much good in this world outside of uh, outside of my brain that uh, you know I'm just one little piece of the puzzle, and I want to you know just just throw my part in and, and do the best I can. So hopefully, um, you know, we can inspire. I can inspire others. Hmm. So I want to back up a little bit here. So then, when you got um, when you got when you start on your path to sobriety, you were already you were already practicing. Uh, dentistry at that point and you were married already Mm -hmm. um did you end up going through the work with that sponsor that you had originally he ended up taking you through the steps and you became willing kind of Um, a thing he's still a dear friend of mine and uh you know i I, yeah i'm so grateful to him yeah for what he he showed me absolutely um and so you were back in michigan at that time Uh and then how did you end up how did you end up moving out west so um, my family had bought some property in the mountains here in 97, and um, we started coming out here uh, for vacations, and um, we fell in love with, with Colorado, okay. and um, it, was, uh, it was an easy decision, really. Yeah. Um, but I remember going to, I'm, I'm just going to take a tangent here if that's okay. Yeah. I, you know, we were living in Michigan, and, you know, and I was in my first... 90 days of recovery and I was coming out to Colorado to, to ski with my, my family and extended friends of family and stuff like that. And, you know, I remember telling my sponsor, I'm like, yeah, I'm going out to Michigan. I'm, I'm going out to Colorado and, you know, and I don't know, there's gonna be a lot of drinking there. And, and he's like, well, just, you know, look in the phone book for AA, call them up and find out where the meetings are. There's great meetings out there. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And, you know, so I got there. First thing I did was, you know, pull up the phone book and look up AA and called the hotline and um, they direct me to a meeting like literally half a mile from where I was staying and um, when I, I got to that meeting um, it was a small mountain town um, and they, they had pretty strong recovery but the in the small mountain town recoveries they're uh, recovery groups they, they all are just kind of talking to themselves and they're sharing their stories over and over and over again you know and yeah. there's you know 12 people <laughs> at this meeting and they they love when uh, outsiders come in and they, they feed off of us because we're fresh uh, fresh blood and fresh <laughs> stories and um, but there was a guy there who um, you know recognized that I was in my first 90 days and doing my 90 and 90 and he was really excited for me, and he anointed himself my my Vale Valley sponsor, <laughs> and uh, and he would take me to meetings before I'd go skiing, and drop me off the ski slope, and or he pick me up from the ski slope, take me to a wow. meeting, and then drop me at dinner with my family, and uh, you know, and it was it was really awesome, and I still go to those meetings, mm-hmm. you know, twenty years later up there, and they're they're some of the most uh, um, amazing meetings ever. Um, because they're in places where there's windows and you get to look at mountains instead of church basements. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. noises from the old buildings we're in. Right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I go back to Michigan and I tell my sponsor, I'm like, hey, I went to this awesome meeting in, in Edwards in the Vale Valley. Have you ever been to that meeting? He's like, no, I've never been to Colorado. 
I'm like, I thought you said there's great meetings out there. <laughs> He's like, well, of course, wherever you seek good meetings, you'll find it, mm. you know? And that was really a, a great lesson for me because I travel a ton right now for, for work. And, um, and I go to meetings, out-of-town meetings everywhere I go, and it's just, just awesome. And the best part about going to out-of-town meetings is you don't really know who not to listen to. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know the people in your home group that are kind of full of shit. Yeah. Right. You know, and you just kind of roll your eyes. But then this meeting, there is it's truly principles before personalities because you don't know the personalities mm-hmm. and uh it's, you get these fresh uh fresh perspectives on on how they do recovery in the various parts of the country and very various parts of the world yeah. and so I, I always make that a point of whenever i'm traveling for sure yeah. um does your your dentist practice and your recovery overlap at all like does does it is it ever even a thing in your life you know like some people want to keep it very separate I, I don't know how that works for you. So. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty open about my, my addiction and my recovery mm-hmm. in my practice. And when I, I started my practice in 2003, um, I wanted to use the, 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 the work that I've, I've learned about myself in recovery as use those as, you know, key values and, and principles and in, in how I'm doing business. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's been awesome. And I was, uh, um, very, uh, open about it to my patients. I don't wear a sign on my around my neck or as an addict, uh, um, <laughs> you know. But uh, but I've been uh, you know treating people in recovery uh, pretty much from the get go, wow. and I became kind of a, a an expert in that. And uh, I got a cool story around that with uh, um, you know meth mouth uh, uh, methamphetamines came on the, the scene in mid two thousands and meth mouth, you know, methamphetamines just destroy teeth. Mm. And, um, and I was treating a lot of people who had meth mouth and, um, it became a national headline. Mm. Um, and it started in the East coast, um, where the the headline was in Tennessee, like 75% of the people in in jail in Tennessee were there as a result of methamphetamine uh, use or pursuit of use, Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, behaviors they exhibited while using, um, you know, and, and, um, but the dental budget for the jails was used up in the first, uh, you know, quarter of the year for all the the, the bad teeth. So it became a national, national news and it trickled, you know, from the East to towards the center of the country and then also, you know, West coast into, into Denver. And, um, you know, and I had been doing this work and the dental association knew I was doing this work. And I asked, uh, um, the dental associate, if they can get any help with it. And they, they wrote some articles about me and we got some people to help with, with this. And, but when it became a, a news story, they, uh, um, the, the media consultants would call the dental association and ask if they knew anything about this meth mouth thing. And of course they called me and asked if I wanted to go on TV and talk about meth mouth. And, um, and I, I didn't really want to go on TV cause I wanted to be, I was doing this like high end cosmetic practice where I'm, you know, fixing these smiles and, you know, hopefully getting paid pretty well for it. And yeah. you know, I wanted to be known as, you know, veneer guy. I didn't want to be known as meth mouth guy. Yeah. And, uh, um, but after, uh, talking with my my sponsor and a bunch of other you know people that i i valued their opinion and it just came to 
decision that, um, you know, that I was going to go on TV if they didn't focus on me, if they focused on the patients, you know, because it's rare that uh, in the news where, where there, there's a good story about, you know, um, someone overcoming addiction at the time. And there's very rare that there's ever a good story about putting dentistry in a good light. <laughs> and so I felt uh, if they can do that, then I would be okay talking about it. And uh, so I talked to the reporter before they did the story and they said, sure, we'll focus on the patients. And um, I asked a few patients that I knew pretty well. Uh, I knew their recovery was pretty solid if they would be willing to, uh, um, you know, share their story on TV. And they were so excited, you know, mm -hmm. because we, you know, fixed their smile, but we gave them a smile. We, we allowed them to really have their, their insides match their outsides, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and it was, it was a big deal. Um, and, uh, it was, it was a great story. Um, then, and it, it aired, um, you know, over a weekend and then every other, uh, news station in Colorado did some version of this story with me. I think we did five of them. Jesus. One of them got picked up by CNN and uh, it went national and so it was, it was played on head, headline news for the weekend, you know, 20 minutes after the hour, there's Brett and his, his meth mouth patients, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was pretty cool. And then the American Dental Association, our, our national uh, voice of, of dentistry and oral health, um, saw it and called me up and asked me if I wanted to come down to Washington, D.C., and um, they were trying to, to create a, a, some legislation that would provide more funding for the treatment of patients with meth mouth. Mm -hmm. And they wanted me to come down to D.C. and, and advocate for their bill. Mm -hmm. And I just kept thinking, whoa. <laughs> 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 you know, this was, I don't know, 2006. And so I was over eight years. I'm like, eight years, no one was really wanting me around. And eight years later, they're, they're, they're asking me to come to Washington, D.C. and talk to Congress. Wow. And um, I got to do that. And I got to share about re you know, recovery and I got to share about addiction. And, and I kind of threw them under the bus, the, the American Dental Association's bill under the bus, where I said, you know, if you've only got a limited amount of money and that money was, you know, you had to decide between, you know, treatment of the disease or treatment of the, of the teeth, please treat the disease because mm. without treatment of the disease, the, the patients are, aren't going to make it. They're going to die. Yeah. And and wow. so the dentistry is not going to work. Um, so anyway, that, uh, you know, is, is a pretty cool experience that I never, ever imagined happening. Um, I came back down to, to Colorado and, and uh, I was um, asked to be part of leadership in the Colorado Dental Association. So Colorado State uh, organized dentistry to advocate for different things. And, um, and I ended up becoming president of that in 2014. And now I'm actually on track to uh, be on the board of directors of the American Dental Association. I'll start this fall. So, um, you know, just total, uh, never imagined, um, you know, in 1998, I wasn't, I was contemplating not living, um, definitely not being a dentist. And, you know, in 2019, I'm, you know, um, you know, been able to, um, you know, create a, a life that's unbelievable. Um, and, and it's valued not only by, um, my, my people here locally, but, you know, across the country. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah. That's a pretty far jump from thinking you might get your license taken away from you if you being where you're at now. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good testament to the power of the, the 12 steps and the power of God. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Like, and I can possible. Yeah. <laughs> and I can speak from the, you know, the other side, I've had the other experience of it, like, uh, I remember when, when I was in treatment, we had to write about our shame, like five things. We mm. just carried shame over. And one of the things and one of the big things that I wrote about was the condition of my mouth, my teeth, and I just not taking very good care of it. 
And I was just, I, I couldn't even go to the dentist. I was full of so much fear and so much shame over the condition that I let things get. And, um, you know, I just had a pre-existing fear, you know. And then I, you know, I met a, you know, a dentist where I live and he was um, super non-judgmental and he just wanted to help. And um, fortunately, I was at the time to have um, an insurance program that was going to pay for most of that. And so... I was able to get my grill fixed, and like the thing that the thing, <laughs> your grill, <laughs> my grill, but like the thing that I, the thing that that I didn't smile. Like I was missing this one, and these ones were all discolored, and I just didn't smile. And uh, people started to know something different about me, but they realized that they just hadn't seen me smile in 20 years, and now I can't get the smile off my face. Yeah, right? Right. my Chester <laughs> <laughs> over here, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> obnoxiously smiling at people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very nice smile it is yeah. from a professional. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that like on the way down today, you just turn at this driver and just smile. I'm like, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> yeah. I thought I decided it was a tour bus from some band, and I just thought I'd you know smile. Give him the smile. I don't know who the hell it was. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> just being weird um as uh i guess what i would like to know a little bit more about we're about 45 minutes in already but uh what um what's your family life like now i know you had said you were married i would assume that th is that your wife still and yeah. what how has that relationship grown and changed as a result of recovery um so you know i put my my wife through an awful lot um she stuck it out with me <coughs> excuse me um, and uh, I, th I always say she qualifies for sainthood, uh, not because she stuck it out with me during the addiction years, but she stuck it out with me through the recovery years, mm. you know, and, you know, and alcohol and cocaine weren't my problem. They were my solution right. to everything. And now you take that away. I have no skills of being in a relationship, um, you know, and, and I, you know, early recovery is so hard. Yeah. So she stuck it out with me and, uh, um, we have four kids who have never seen me drunk or high, and uh, but they have seen me be an asshole, <laughs> and uh, I've made amends for that yeah. on far too many occasions. Uh, one of the things my sponsor told me early on uh, while we were pregnant with our first was that the best gift I can ever give my family is continued work in the 12 steps, mm -hmm. and I found that to be true. Mm. Um, I go to a, uh, a conference every year. Uh, it's called International Doctors in AA. And it's at various cities around the country, and they've not only have uh, um, recovery programs for healthcare professionals such as me, um, but they have a really, really good, strong uh, family program. And so, um, you know, there's Alan on there. There's Alateens. Um, there's Alatwenties, and um, and my my family have have basically grown up there, mm -hmm. and they've learned about recovery, and not that they're. Um, you know, they didn't, like I said, they didn't see me drunk or high, but they have a firm understanding of why I go to meetings and why, uh, and, and the risks that they um, have from genetics uh, that, you know, they're, they're, they're at risk for, you know, the addiction uh, infliction as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, about a couple of years ago, one of my kids started experimenting with uh, drugs and drinking and it, uh, you know, I started obsessing over it to the point where, um, you know, I was projecting my autobiography on, on my child's uh, story. <laughs> and um, it 
paralyzed me. Mm-hmm. It really did. And mm-hmm. uh, so I started going to Al-Anon. And um, I'm a uh, card-carrying member of Al-Anon, uh, wow. as well as uh, AA and Cocaine Anonymous as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a sponsor, and we're working steps That's around awesome. it. So, and and he's, you know what, he's been great. And, uh, you know, and, and nothing's really changed. I'm not sure if he's using or not. Um, but he is, uh, we've had lots of, like, sane discussions around, you know, experimentation. And, um, and I could not have done that without the help of the program, you know, without mm-hmm. guidance of people that have been there. Um, and it's just, it just keeps expanding. So, um, you know, and, and not only that, um, my family, uh, most of my family still lives in Chicago. And, um, you know, I've got a great relationship with my siblings and my dad. Um, and, and we talk to them at least once a week, even though we're geographically separated, we're, we're still in a great relationship. Um, I, uh, and my mom passed away about two years ago and, um, I was able to, to make amends to her about, um, true amends, like, you know, eight years before she passed away. And those last eight years were, were amazing. And when she passed away, you know, all of my siblings and I were, you know, at her bedside with really nothing that had been left unsaid, Mm, you know, Mm -hmm. and it sucked that she died, but it was a beautiful moment knowing that she knew that we were there. Um, that would have never, ever happened without my work, uh, you know, in recovery. And that, that came from my third round of steps, Mm. not from my first. (laughs) I just had an experience that was, I had an uncle that I, that I had owned amends to, and he was definitely one of us. And he was, he was getting late stage in his drinking and his drugging and uh, I had owed him amends and I, I just randomly ran into him on the north side of town and I hadn't seen him for a while because he'd been out and he'd been running and gunning and um, I'd just gotten back from a conference and um, the the 8-9 panel really impacted me and I'd done half of my amends and then had felt so good that I just put the brakes on. That was a big bolt of lightning. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh man. Yeah, Kyle's got a truck outside that hasn't even been plated yet, so <laughs> yeah. he's worried. Um, and uh, I ran into him and I was like, man, I got to do this right now. I don't know if I'm going to have a chance to make my amends again. And so I, and so I made my amends right there that day and that was, uh, that was July 2nd. And uh, July 4th, he died in a drunk driving accident. And my family was asked me to go up in there and, and say something at his funeral. And it was the first time I'd ever been to anyone's funeral where there wasn't something that was left unsaid or undone. You know, right. like we'd gotten that buttoned up. So I got to be present for that moment. And like yeah. that just doesn't happen without this program. No, there was just no total way. gift. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, <laughs> are, you like, are you like, oh no, I'm listening, man. I'm engaged. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, I don't know. We just talked to Amy a little bit about this too, but maybe a little bit about your 11 step practice and like any outside. Cause you know, normally in the rooms, we don't talk about outside literature and outside things, but this podcast, we're free to talk about, you know, whatever we'd like. And so we found, you know, we talked about different books that we like to read that have been beneficial, you know, for our spiritual growth and part of our meditation practice. I was just wondering if you had any of those that stood out that you use or that have been specifically impactful, you know, throughout your sure. 20 years. Or You know, uh, in December, I, I started practicing meditation uh, on a pretty much daily basis and I use the uh, Headspace app hmm. and they guide you through 10 minutes and mm-hmm. you know it, it's it's kind of funny because it's so simple um, but it's so empowering to me mm-hmm. you know when I don't do it I know it yeah and and so that that's a, a regular thing for me for the last six months um, and it's been a huge 
um, addition to my my recovery. But I wake up every morning and I I, I say my prayers and uh, you know, I do a third step prayer, um, and and you know where it, it talks about take away my difficulties. And so when it says that, I. I have to, you know, say, well, what are my difficulties today? Mm. You know, what what am I going to be challenged with? What am I facing? And so I try and hedge everything that I can, so I can be um, spiritually fit for um, everything I can think of during the day. And then when things come unexpected, that that's, uh, you know, then you know, hopefully I'll I'll be able to act correctly from there. Um, I I have a mission statement that I read on a pretty regular basis that I picked up through Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I read that my first year, and it's a wonderful book, um, and it's it's a self-help book similar to the 12-step, or similar to the big book, um, but, uh, you know, coined it a little different way. And I think all these self-help books have the same same goal is to enlarge your spirit, to to help grow your spirit, Mm -hmm. find things you're passionate about, and then do it. And so I read a lot of those, those things. But the difference between normies, non-alcoholics, non-addicts, and, and, and alcoholics and addicts is that we're doing this um, because if we don't do it, we're going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, where the normies, if they don't do it, well, they just won't have as good of a life. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Um, so, so that's uh, Seven Habits was a great book for me. Um, I've, I've read thousands of them, actually, over the yeah. years. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. The, when I started in Al-Anon, um, a year and a half ago, my, my sponsor uh, was getting ready to take me through the steps. So I bought the Al-Anon book, and he's like, "Oh no, 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 we're going to go through the big book again." I'm like, "Really? Yeah. <laughs> what? <Yeah>. Really?" <laughs> and so he, you know, and I guess there's, you know, after reading through it with him, uh, where we're at, I, I see there's a whole like uh, Al-Anon program that's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, hidden in those blacks yeah. and whites, and right. uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's pretty cool. Um, I listen to um, recovery podcasts on a pretty regular basis. One, um, I'm part of a, a couple Facebook groups. Um, one is called Sober Triathletes. One is called Ultra Runners in Recovery, and where I found a lot of people. These these are my tribe. Mm. These are are absolutely hardcore um, athletes who like to push the envelope, and they're also really hardcore in recovery. And I met some really good friends through that. And when I travel, I try and meet with some of those people to not only hit meetings but maybe go for a run too and it's been awesome um what else uh uh, there's a a book about um um, called emotional intelligence um written by daniel goleman which is a really impactful book and what i found is that the um you know i I do a lot of work around emotional sobriety and i've given some talks around the country to uh, healthcare professionals on, on emotional sobriety and um you know that our, our primal emotions are are in the same part of our brain as where our, our addiction lands, mm. and and if we don't deal with um, how to identify what we're feeling when we're feeling it, um, you know it's, it leaves us on shaky ground with our recovery, and so it's it's really important that we keep pushing our recovery, uh, keeping the bar pushed north, you know, mm-hmm. and um, so. Um, because what worked for me in 1998 doesn't work for me here in 2019. Absolutely. We have to keep enlarging our spirit. So, um, and then, you know, recently I've found this new book called The 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It really is uh, pretty powerful stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Um, Drop the Rock is a good one um, that I'm reading right now again for the umpteenth time. And just, just good stuff. That's awesome. I, you are an inspiration. You're just, <laughs> I, I'm just blown away at everything that you do. And 
her accomplish and stuff. So I I want to say thank you for for being on this, especially short notice, not knowing either of us and being willing to come talk about your life and your experience. I just want to say thank you very much. Thank you. I, yeah. I think that you, know, you never know who's listening. You never know what they hear, and you never know when they hear it. Mm-hmm. And so those of us who have recovered, we are responsible mm-hmm. to, to share. Absolutely. You know? And um, you know, just as you know, people were there when we showed up, I think we have to be there for hold the door open for the next people. And so I, this is... This is it. This is a foundation for everything in my life. So I'm I'm really glad to have met you guys and uh, yeah. you know, I love what you're doing because you. you have no idea the ripple effect of who's going to hear the work you're doing mm-hmm. and what it's going to the positive effect it's going to have on them. Yeah. So thank you. thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I don't. I, don't re- I was going to say something. I don't think I should talk anymore. <laughs> you're done. Yeah. What am I going to say, man? Uh, why don't you plug our stuff? Okay. We do have an email. <laughs> we do have an email. It's called recoveredafpodcast at gmail and we have an Instagram page now too, and it's Recovered AF Podcast. Yep. And then, um, and then I fucking tried to log into it, and then mistyped Recovered AF Podcast, and somehow started my own Instagram page <laughs> that's one letter off from Recovered <laughs> AF Podcast. <laughs> oh, you were something else. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I was like embarrassed, sweating hot when I realized what I did. Yeah. Like something that you know my cousin pointed out to me, and I was just like, oh god. You were something else. So now I'm just gonna tell everybody about it. But don't worry, sometimes, we only have eight sometimes people Sometimes quickly, listening. sometimes slowly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mostly slowly. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thank you again. <laughs>